an ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Life After God podcast. I'm Ryan Bell, and this is episode 69. I'm excited to share with you another conversation in what has become my ongoing series on exvangelicals, people who have left evangelicalism due to abuse and marginalization and erasure of the voices and experiences of women, LGBTQ individuals, people of color, and frankly, anyone that doesn't fit within their very narrow view of the world. I consider myself an exvangelical, though the term didn't exist back when I left the church in 2013. And the Seventh-day Adventist Church is only marginally evangelical, but close enough. Where the Adventist Church misses the evangelical mark, it misses to the right in most ways. Today, I'm talking with Emily Joy, co-founder of the Church2 hashtag that you may have seen if you're on Twitter or other social media platforms. If you're not familiar with this, you will be by the time we're done here. You'll also have more reading to do if you wish. I'll be linking to several articles in the show notes that will round out your knowledge base, not only about Emily and her experience, but about the Church 2 movement. Before we get to my conversation with Emily, I wanted to say what a great time we had on Friday night with our first live hangout. There were eight of us that were able to join, and I'm grateful for each and every one of you that joined in and contributed to this ongoing conversation about the sources of ethics and how we should apply ethical ideas in our lives as people who reject a divine command theory of moral philosophy. Special shout out to Aaron Rabinowitz, philosopher extraordinaire and co-host of Embrace the Void and Philosophers in Space podcasts. If all goes well, Aaron will be my guest right here on the next episode of the podcast. Finally, if you missed the Hangout, The recording will be available for members later this week, so keep an eye out for that. And speaking of members, this podcast is brought to you, as always, by the members. I want to especially thank those of you that have joined as members since the last episode, specifically Gretchen, Jessica, and Claudia. Thank you so much for your support. These individuals, along with 56 others, make this podcast possible so that it will be available without cost to everyone who needs or wants it. If you would like to be a part of this group of individuals who help to produce this podcast, I'd like to invite you to become a member. All you have to do is go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. You can contribute any amount you like as a recurring monthly donation from as little as $1 up to as much as this podcast is worth to you. The membership level starts at $5 a month, and I'll put links to all of this in the show notes as always. In addition to knowing you're making this podcast available for people who need it, you will also be joining a growing community of people who are thinking, talking, and working together on what a meaningful life after God looks like. When you become a member, you'll be able to join the Facebook group where members discuss podcast episodes, share and support one another, give feedback, and so forth. You'll also have access to the recording of Friday Night's Hangout with Aaron Rabinowitz. 
Today, my guest is Emily Joy. Emily is a spoken word poet, a yoga teacher, and an activist living and working in Nashville, Tennessee. Her advocacy takes place at the intersection of faith, sexuality, and healing, and her work has been featured in Time, Cosmopolitan, Jezebel, Mother Jones, The Huffington Post, and more. Emily is the co-creator of the Church 2 hashtag, a Me Too spinoff exposing sexual violence in Christian churches and other faith communities. She is also a sexuality education writer for the website Scarletine, and in her spare time works at a church. More about Emily and her work can be found at emilyjoypoetry.com. You can also find Emily online on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at the username Emily Joy Poetry. And of course, I'll include links to her social media accounts, as well as articles, as I mentioned, by or about her in the show notes. So without any further delay, here is my conversation with Emily Joy. Emily Joy, welcome to the Life After God podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh, what a pleasure. It's been so interesting to... Uh, follow you on Twitter these last many months. And yeah, interesting is one word that people use for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think I uh, I first heard about you from Chris Stroop. Oh, and, wonderful. I love him. Yeah. And he was on an earlier episode of the podcast. And, um, you know, it, you came up in conversation. And ever since then, I've been wanting to, to have you on the show. And so I, I, I'm really excited to get into this. I guess to get us started, why don't why don't you go back to some of your earliest religious and spiritual memories? Um, and, and I'd love to hear what that was like for you. What was spirituality and religion like for you as a kid? Yeah. Um, well, for me, like as a child, spirituality and religion was, was everything. Um, it was the end all and the be all. It's all there was. Um, my dad was a Southern Baptist youth pastor when I was born. Um, and then later, ended up kind of starting his own nonprofit that essentially put us in the position of being basically uh, stateside missionaries, mm. uh, where we were still mm. support raised, but just not international. Um, and we would travel around and he would preach at all kinds of different churches, all kinds of different um, youth camps and retreats and conferences and festivals that were all, you know, Christian and largely conservative Christian in nature. Um, and so, so for me, it was, it was all of life. And was it, would you say it was a mix of positive and negative sort of um, emotions around it or or what? How would you? Just... Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think especially given my experience, you know, a lot of people have the experience of growing up in like one particular denomination and stuff. Um, and, and that's not my experience. My experience is growing up in um, almost every denomination, <laughs> every, mm. every, every conservative Protestant denomination that you can think of. We spent time in um, from, you know, Baptist to Calvinist to people who speak in tongues and everything in between, you know? Wow. And um, so for me, it was, it was really a mixed bag. It, when you, when you are in that sort of environment, you get the sense that like, on the, on the one side, you get a really good sense of like, oh, there's not one way to do this. There's lots of ways to do this. And like, mm. and, and it's okay for us to be in community with people who do it lots of different ways. And so um, and that was kind of a message that I internalized. But then in addition to getting the best of everything, you know, you also sort of get the worst of everything too. So it's definitely, it's definitely a mixed bag. Yeah. So many people that I talk to um, say that they had 
really a wonderful experience as a child because a lot of times, you know, church involves other kids and sometimes involves, you know, lots of food and camping trips. And oh, yeah. Staying, well, and especially yeah. because I was homeschooled. And so for me, church was like school. You know, church was my social life. Church right. was where all my friends were. And so so church played a really important part, um, I would say, in that, like socially as well. Did it feel when your dad was um, a support it's like a self-supporting pastor. Um, yeah. Did that feel insecure to you as a kid or did that just seem like normal life? It did more just seem like normal life. Um, you know, we definitely played a part in it. Um, I, I can remember all of these um, like silly like camp songs that my dad had us memorize. Um, and sometimes we'd go around to like um, places that were going to maybe give us money and we would stand up on stage and like sing the songs. We were like the the Von Trapps. Um, <laughs> and yeah. So, I mean, we definitely played a part in it. The, the, here, we traveled around with him because, you know, the here's my seven kids thing, um, or six at the time. Hmm. Uh, but here's, here's all of my children who will go hungry if we don't have money. That's great. Um, that's a strong a, appeal. That's just, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And where are you in the birth order? I'm the oldest. I'm the okay. oldest of seven now. Wow. And does it, does it match like your experience with what they say about birth order? Um, I definitely got I definitely got the brunt of my parents' uh, theological experiments uh, for sure. Yeah. Right, you were supposed to be responsible and a good example right, for your yeah. siblings. Um, well, and you know when they were like, oh, "Maybe we should listen to James Dobson about uh, abstinence and sex ed." We're going to do the James Dobson tapes. Did my younger siblings get that? No, they didn't no. get any James Dobson tapes. They but, were you too know. young at that point. But you got all. Well, of they, it. Did, they they didn't even get it when they got older. I'm just saying, like, it's mm. like one of those things where like you almost you almost get like whatever uh, whatever like theological thing they're trying on. Like you get the brunt of it as the <laughs> oldest. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I, I I can relate to that. I'm I'm an oldest, but only of two. So when yeah, you, but you still get it. Yeah, absolutely. So when you, um, you know, you, you write and so much of what's been written about you and what you've written and, and the stories that you've appeared in um, talk about uh, a moment in your young adult uh, experience in the church that sort of was the beginning of what eventually became um, Church 2, the hashtag yeah. that you invented, that you that mm-hmm. you coined. Um, what, what was that like? And again... Um, just obviously you've been asked this a million times and so <laughs> yeah. whatever you feel comfortable sharing is I, oh. I, fe- I feel bad even asking sometimes. But. No, it's fine. I, I mean, I really think everybody says that whenever they ask me that question, it's like, whatever you feel comfortable sharing. But truly though, like, I mean, at this point in the last 14 months, I've probably told this story like a hundred times. Um, so it definitely gets <laughs> easier with repetition. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm still actively in therapy, so I am taking care of myself. But, uh, but yeah, no. So um, essentially what happened was, um, like I had said, we were sort of like a traveling stateside missionary family. We went to all different kinds of churches. But when we weren't traveling, we kind of had a home church at this um, non-denominational evangelical megachurch in my hometown, which I believe had some Baptist roots, um, but really essentially was basically just trying to be Willow Creek. Um, Willow Creek was like their, their we all? dream. Um, yeah, wasn't everybody. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so this was this church that we went to, you know, on the regular when we weren't traveling. Um, and at this church during um, my high school years and culminating uh, when I was 16, I ended up being sort of romantically groomed for a relationship by an older youth leader who was in his 30s. Um, he wasn't the youth pastor, but he was a very well-respected leader in the youth group who all the kids looked up to, all the parents really trusted. It was this whole thing. So, um, 
when that happened and when it came out that that was happening, what happened was I was viewed to be at least partially at fault mm. um, in all of this. The church kind of swept it under the rug, didn't really tell um, a whole lot of people. I think they told some, um, but the parents, def- most of the parents definitely didn't know um, and continued to allow their children to have access to him. Um, and, um, he, you know, left that church was sort of made to leave that church, but went on to work at other churches, um, with other youth groups. And so was never really held accountable for it. Um, as far as my family went, my parents, um, blamed me for it. The last time that I ever spoke to my abuser, uh, was when they had me call him to apologize. My word. Um, and, uh, you know, then of course I was punished and grounded and all that sort of thing. So it was definitely made out to be like, I did something wrong. You seduced him or something or like, yeah. you well, were... I mean, it wasn't even that it was, I think, cause it was a, it was a very weird experience where, um, like I, I don't, I've never known one of the reasons I didn't come forward about it for so long was because, um, rape and sexual assault is not a part of my story. Mm. Um, it was definitely going there. Um, you know, I think one of the things about grooming is I always sort of compare it to like how you can boil a frog without it knowing if you just turn the water up one degree at a time, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so, you know, it starts by just having, you know, private text conversations and then you're talking in a corner of a church and then you're in somebody's car in the back seat and no one else is there. And, you know, this sorts of thing. And it's like gradually escalating these behaviors right? so that it feels normal, but it was found out before he was able to take it to a physical level. Right. right. Um, and I mean, there was a lot of, there was a lot of uh, technological communication that definitely would have been considered extremely inappropriate. But um, as far as, you know, a physical relationship didn't happen. And so that's one of the reasons why I didn't come forward about it for so long, because I thought, you know, all these other people have it so much worse, like that, you know, it's, it's that sort of like self gaslighting thing that people and especially women are conditioned to do. Um, and saying like, it's not that bad, you know? Right, <laughs> and yeah. of course it, and it was this like uniquely traumatizing thing because like here was this man in his thirties who was like telling me he wanted to marry me, telling me all the things he wanted to do to me, telling me we had to keep this romantic relationship a secret, you know, all this stuff. Um, and I didn't, I didn't know what to do with that at 16. Like I, and at 16, you're kind of in that stage where you're like beginning to differentiate yourself, you know, from your parents and become an individual. And so you think that you're a grown up, but like developmentally you're a child. Um, and, and so it was just like such a, a horrible, complicated, traumatizing thing. Um, and I didn't come forward about it for a long time because of that. And because I was blamed for it, um, when, when the adults in my life didn't understand that a 16 year old can't consent to a romantic relationship with a man in his thirties, particularly a man who's supposed to be like a spiritual mentor, right. you know? Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of what happened. And then, um, then I just kind of sat on that story for like a decade Mm. um yeah event yeah that's that's what happened yeah and so many people do i mean so many um and as you know as anyone that hasn't been like living on the moon for the last two years knows so many women have been sitting on stories like yours and stories of of physical assault and rape as well and really didn't come forward for sort all sorts of reasons you know but they all boil down to this fear and not just an unfounded fear for sure a very founded fear that it would um the coming out about it would affect the woman negatively much more than it would affect the man and and in fact this has been shown over and over again hasn't it to be true yeah no absolutely i mean uh Dr. Christine Blasey Ford mm, mm-hmm. still go outside of her house without security, you know? 
Yeah, that's just, yeah, and, and and hers was so public. I can't have, I can't begin yeah. to imagine. Um, even though I sort of was glued to my phone and my television during during those oh, yeah. days. That but... was one of the hardest things for me to watch in the entire world because I knew exactly what was going to happen. And I was like, you know what? Like, she is a fucking hero. And yeah. I know exactly what's going to happen right now. And she is doing the right thing. And like it, and like it's going to end terribly, but it's the right, like it's the only way she's going to be able to sleep at night. We also. And it's so horrible. It's so horrible. In my sort of in one part of my world, I tend to interact with people who describe themselves variously as skeptics or rational thinkers and that type of yeah. thing. And, and um, of course, those are intended to be uh, compliments, right? Uh, to be rational, sure, yeah. <laughs> to be a skeptic. Um, but but we, we encounter so many people, I at least I do, and I know I'm sure you must have encountered so many people who really don't understand how evidence works in these types of cases. Not at all, um, yeah. We're not, you know, we're not uh, looking at DNA evidence or physical uh, proof of something generally, uh, under, except in very specific cases. Um, how, how, what can you describe? I mean, because I think for a lot of people, they can't even understand what that's like to be bearing the burden of this experience and the story that's affected you and scarred you and and yet people don't believe you because there's not yeah. this sort of rock solid proof of it or something. Yeah, one thing about coming forward with a decade old story of abuse is that you really find out like which of your high school friends turned into good people and which of them turned into apologists for abusers. Wow. Yeah. Um because I had people come out of the woodwork, people I hadn't talked to in almost 10 years to say, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. I knew something fishy had happened. I didn't know what, like, I believe you. I'm sorry. And then I had people come out of the woodwork to say, you know what, like what he did was bad, but it wasn't this bad. He doesn't deserve this. What are you doing? Huh. Right. And, and it's just, it's one of those things where I think like there's different, um, I don't know, there's different definitions of justice. You know, I don't think um, I deleted the, I deleted our emails and our text messages so many years ago, mm. you know, there's, there's absolutely no way, even if, even if, and I'm not even sure, I don't, I'm not familiar enough with like the legal, uh, legalese around all of this to know what qualifies, but like, even if you could constitute, you know, some of what he said to me as like sexual solicitation of a minor or something, um, I have no evidence of that. I have no, you know, I deleted everything because I was shamed. I was shamed. I was so ashamed of everything that I just years and years and years ago when I was a teenager, I deleted it all mm. because I felt so bad and I felt so ashamed of everything. And so for me, I'm like, there's nothing I can do to like bring legal justice to this dude, you know? Right. Um, but I will tell you what comes up when you Google his name. Hmm. Yeah. Your story. <laughs> my, my story comes up yeah. when you Google his name. And so, so to me, that's a version of justice. Um, to me that, that is, that's, that's a justice that I can live with. Um, and I think everybody has to figure out for themselves, every survivor has to figure out for themselves, like what constitutes justice to them. Yeah. And certainly we would have hoped for more justice in oh, the case absolutely. of, uh, in, especially like in the case of, um, Dr. Ford. Um, mm -hmm. but then again, you know, Brett Kavanaugh's Wikipedia page is always going to have, you know, a whole section on the sexual assault allegations that came yeah. forward and and that you know i mean is that gonna stop him from taking away my reproductive rights probably, probably not yeah probably um, not <laughs> but one day his daughter's gonna google that yeah yeah and i guess that's 
you know, we don't get perfect a perfect world and we can't go back yeah. in time and fix things. But I guess some of those things can bring at least a little comfort that I mean, the person's at least not out there scot-free just doing yeah. the same thing to other people over and over again. Mm-hmm. So when you... Um, a few months... Well, no, actually, I, I need to correct that. Um, when you, I guess about a year ago now, started the Church 2 hashtag, what made you decide you wanted to to come forward and, and what, what brought church two to mind? Yeah. Um, it's been, it's been over a year now. I just was thinking about that the other day. Cause I feel like 2018, I mean, just personally, professionally in every possible way, 2018, I felt like was a long ass year. Oh man. Yeah. And it kind of just feels like a blur to me. So in my head the other day, I was thinking, did we just start that? But no, we started <laughs> it in November of 2017, Wow, which seems like a lifetime ago. Um, but yeah, no, ultimately what happened was the Me Too movement was taking off. And that's one thing we've always been super clear about when we're talking about this is like, you know, Church 2 doesn't exist without Me Too. It doesn't mm. exist without Tarana Burke and without all of the brave women that came forward to like build the wave of momentum that has like kept on rolling from then till now and continues to. Um, and and so I think, you know, um, politics and like in terms of like the the nuances of Washington and how it works is not my um expert my area of expertise nor is the nuances of like um Hollywood social politics so these are <laughs> and especially being homeschooled I'm like I don't honestly know who half of movie stars are like some of these some, sometimes people get accused of things and I'm like I've literally never heard of that person I'm still catching up I'm at like I would say probably like 2003 in my pop culture knowledge. I have a gap um, in my memory too when I went to uh, a very fundamentalist college and we weren't supposed to watch movies of any kind. And my girlfriend will sometimes mention, if, if the movie came out between, say, 1988 and 1994, I, I don't know anything about it. <laughs> yeah, see, my gap is from about like 96 to like 2006. <laughs> um, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's like a whole like 10-year gap where I just know nothing. Hmm. Um so anyway, you know, I've been I've been obviously paying attention to the Me Too movement, to the accusations of Hollywood and Washington, but they they didn't necessarily um, have a lot to do with like my experience. Um, and we'd been talking about it like in my friend group. And at the time I was in yoga teacher training, I teach yoga um, and it had been a really like uh, common conversation in my yoga teacher training group Um it was a group of women, just a small group of women in that, in that class. And we got really close and talked about a lot of really intimate stuff like that. And, um, you know, one day, I don't even remember who it was at this point, to be honest with you, but it was like two or three other dudes in Hollywood had like gotten accused of something. And I was just sitting at my house alone. And I was like, I just got really mad. (laughs) So I, I, I got on a group chat, like a little group text Mm -hmm. and I texted my friends and I was like, Hey, should I, um, out my abuser on Twitter? Probably, huh? (laughs) And they were very supportive of that idea of that idea. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. Um, so I sat down and I made a little thread it took me probably an hour. Um, and you know, I named names. I named him. I named the church. Um, I was very specific and um, pretty quickly, this was kind of like, uh, by this time it was probably like eight or nine o'clock at night. Um, and pretty quickly, like people like just in my own circle started to respond mm-hmm. um, and say things like, oh, something like this similar happened to me. I had this story happen at this church with this youth leader who tried X, Y, Z and blah, blah, blah. Um, and 
And so enough people like pretty quickly started to respond that my friend Hannah Posh um, texted me and was like, hey, uh, people seem like they want to have this conversation. We should probably figure out a way to facilitate this. Yeah. Um, Because it seems like people are like really, you know, picking up what you're putting down. Um, And so we batted some ideas back and forth, settled on a hashtag. We did, we just picked church too, because we were like, well, it's not a lot of characters and we feel like the, the association will be such that people will understand what it means when they see it. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's a really quick association. Yeah. yeah, It's pithy. Um, And so uh, I was like, okay, you tweet that out. I'm going to bed (laughs) because the next morning I was leaving on a trip. Um, And you know, both both Hannah and I had at the time like pretty modest reaches. We we expected that we would get like a decent bit of traction out of it, and um, you know, hoped that you know some media would pay attention or something because we'd been having these conversations, you know, surrounding faith and sexuality and abuse and um, all this stuff for years and years and years. Right. Um. And by the morning, we woke up and there were thousands of tweets already, and it had pretty much instantly gone viral. And and truly, it's pretty much been like a full-time job ever since. <laughs> Isn't that amazing how that can happen? Yeah. Let's, I guess let's go back a little bit. So you at some point along this line um, made some decisions about your own religious and <laughs> spiritual yeah. life um, before you got to the point where a year and four months ago or whatever decided yeah. to out your abuser. Um, well, how did that come about? Um, yeah. So I don't know, like sometimes when people like know where I came from and they know that like I was homeschooled and the oldest of seven and my dad was a pastor and then I went to Moody Bible Institute and then, and then they look at me now and they're like, what, what happened? <laughs> Something <laughs> like, changed along the way. Yeah. Um, and it's hard cause it's like, I don't, there's not necessarily like, I mean, obviously the thing that happened when I was 16 with my church two story was very traumatic. Um, and I would say that was a big part of like, maybe that was the first thread. Um, but you know, you have a thread that comes loose and it's up to you whether you want to keep pulling on it, mm-hmm. you know, and some people never do. That's um, true. Some, some people just leave the loose thread there. Um, and, and so I would say maybe that was like the first thread, but honestly, like, it's not like, it's not like one big thing that like caused it all to happen. I think it's just a lot of little things, you know, you change your mind, about little things here and there. Um, I mean, the church two thing happened, but then I went to Moody Bible Institute. And even though I was at Moody, I was also in Chicago, like one of the biggest cities in the country. And it was way bigger than my tiny little town. And I met a bunch of people who didn't act like what I was told they were going to act. I worked and lived in boys town and I met a bunch of queer folks who like my religion said, we're going to hell, Mm. but I, but I didn't feel that way about them, you know, but I was, I was taught to interact with them in such a way that they were, you know, and then, so you meet other people and then, and then you have a heartbreak and then you realize that like, if God ordained that he's kind of an asshole. And then, you know, you just like one little thing at a time. Yep. Until, then you wake up one day a couple of years later and you're like, Oh, I guess I don't believe like hardly anything that I used to believe, but you're not quite sure how it happened. It's very, it's very subtle. Yeah. It was a very subtle process. And because I think religion, well, maybe spirituality and religion for many people operates in the background of their life while they're going on with, you know, their schooling and their work and their families. It's not always front and center to them. And it's, kind of these transformations can be happening 
in your thinking while you're sort of the everyday motions of your life can kind of sort of carry on the way they always have. And I know so many people who kept going to church and kept paying tithe and kept doing all the things that they Mm -hmm. um, had always been doing. And then suddenly they reached sort of a tipping point where they were like, this isn't going to work for me. So I had stopped going to church for a little while in like 2013. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, and that was while I was like in the middle of like deconstructing all of my beliefs about like sexuality and stuff. And then I uh, missed it. I missed church. Hmm. And so I said to myself, I would like to go back to church, um, but I don't want to go to any of the churches that are like what I've gone to my whole life. Um, And I knew a bunch of people on Twitter who were um, Episcopalian. (laughs) Mm. So I Googled Episcopal churches near me and I picked one with a lady priest. There you go. And I went there. (laughs) um, And the first Sunday they baptized the baby of a lesbian couple they're off to and a great I, start for you, right? And I realized, well, I realized I had more of a problem with the baby baptism. Uh, I was like, that that feels weirder to me than like the gay marriage thing. Um, and I just sobbed. Like I just sobbed my entire way. Wow. I mean, it was like ugly. I was like ugly crying my way through that entire first service. Um, and so I, I've been in the Episcopal church ever since, um, you know, like most Episcopalians, I show up maybe 50% of the time sure. <laughs> um, when I do show up, I go to a very small, very gay Episcopalian congregation um, here in my hometown of Nashville. Um, and sometimes I get drinks with my priest. So as you do when you're Episcopalian. Yeah. yeah I, and I feel like that counts too. Yes, absolutely. That's like personal church. What, did, yeah. what was it that you missed that made you go back? I think I missed having a place to bring a casserole. Interesting. Okay. You know, I missed missed having like a place to be friends with like babies and old people, like the intergenerational community. I feel like, I feel like the way that we live our lives right now is Mm. very like generationally stratified. Yep. um, Or stratified, I mean. And so, so it's very like, if you don't go to church, like where else are you going to get to like hold a baby or be friends with someone who's 50 years older than you, you know, who's not related to you? Like it, and and so for me, it was like the motions that I missed. It was the community. It was like the showing up on a Sunday and bringing whatever, you know, a crock pot mm-hmm. full of something. Like, um, yeah, I think that's what I missed the most about it. And so, it's you know, it's interesting, um, like, in the we, the whole thing about Episcopalianism is, like, the creeds. And I'm like, I don't really believe a whole lot of um, the creeds. Yeah. so to speak. Right, right. Um, very small amount of them. Actually, um, last spring I did a like a 30-day poetry challenge with some people in my um, poetry Facebook group. And one of the challenges was to make like a found poem, um, you know, where you take like an existing piece of like a page from a book or a newspaper article or something or whatever. And then you just use the words that are on the page to create a poem and you could like cross out the rest. I thought it'd be funny to do it with uh, the, the Nicene Creed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great idea. It was great. And so I was like, I'm just going to cross out like all the things that I don't like. (laughs) Do you still have that? I'm sure I do in my office somewhere. I can find it. I would love Um, to share that with the along with the episode with folks would probably get a kick out of that. Oh, yeah, I'm sure I can find it. In fact, I think I posted it in my Facebook group so I can find it. Awesome. Um, But yeah, no, there wasn't a whole lot left is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) It was very minimal. So I would say, I mean, that's kind of where I'm at now. Like I keep showing up 
Um, but that was part of my deal. When I joined that church, I sat down with the old priest and I was like, Hey, I am not going to get confirmed. Um, cause I don't believe the stuff, but like, I'll show up sure, and I, and I'll give you money and I'll like volunteer. And he was like, okay. And I was like, all right, we have a deal. Well, and I found, you know, I used to be a pastor and I, one of the things I missed was the way that church allowed me to sort of, along with others, put my belief system into practice around issues of justice and equality and Mm -hmm. compassion and healing and that type of stuff, like whether it was taking care of the homeless or fighting for more affordable housing, you know, the church gave me a vehicle uh, around which I could, you know, carry out those things. And as clergy, it also gave me entree into like a political world mm-hmm. where I could speak truth to power. And I was, you know, assumed to have some kind of authority, <laughs> you yeah. know, because I had this title. And then I mm-hmm. w- wasn't a pastor. And all of a sudden, one of the weirdest things for me, I was just outside of all of that. And I was like, I still care about those issues, but I guess I'm nobody now. Um, so yeah. I've missed I've missed that a little bit. Um I you know the the day I reached out to you to ask if you'd be on the show is was the day that the Houston Chronicle published the first part of yes. their story about the Southern mm-hmm. Baptist um churches and the victims there and the perpetrators um and you you had a little brush with Southern Baptism along the way um and I I think you probably knew something about that story before it actually came out um but how did that whole thing land for you? Was it kind of like, yep, that's what we should expect? Or was it like a big reveal to you? Yeah, you know, honestly, I have I just was looking at my Twitter drafts um, like yesterday, the day before. And I have a very salty tweet in my Twitter drafts that I haven't tweeted about why the hell anybody is shocked about any of that. Um, because, I mean, truly, like the people who are shocked were not paying attention. I mean, that's the whole point of church too. When we started it is like anecdotally, we knew this stuff was out there. Like we talk, you know, like women talk to each other. Survivors talk to each other. Like we knew all this stuff was out there, but it's just like, nobody would believe us. And I even think of like, um, you know, Rachel Denhollander has done a lot of work with trying to get more of a spotlight shown on the Sovereign Grace Ministries scandal mm-hmm. um, that involves C.J. Mahaney, in which a lot of you know folks like Al Mohler and a lot of people had defended him um, back in the day when that was all happening, and that was a few years ago. That was before um, Me Too happened. That was you know long before Church Two, and. Uh, it's just interesting because we tried so hard to get attention. I mean, we had a hashtag. It was hashtag I stand with SGM victims. I've been blocked on the go- or blocked by the Gospel Coalition on Twitter for years because I was tweeting on the I stand with SGM victims hashtag, and they basically went through and did like a block of everyone who was tweeting on that hashtag because they were so threatened. Huh. Um, by the spotlight being shown on Sovereign Grace Ministries and particularly on C.J. Mahaney. Um, and, uh, you know, Josh Harris, who wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye, has also, um, you know, been a part of that story insofar as he was involved with some of those churches. And so, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, it's, it, it goes deep. And, and that's just one. That's just Sovereign Grace Ministries. That's right. not all the other different kinds of 
you know, ministries and organizations and nonprofits and churches and denominations. And we all knew this was out there and we have been trying to talk about it for years. And that's, you know, when we talk, when we have conversations about purity culture, when we have conversations about sexism and homophobia and sex education and all of this, you know, this is a big reason why, Mm -hmm. you know, like, because we know these stories are out there because we know what happens when sexuality is not handled well. Um, and so, so yeah, it's just, I was not at all shocked. Um, you know, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church and, uh, to be frank with you, my dad was my mother's youth pastor. So there's, you know, we've known this forever. Um, you know, and, and so it's just one of those things where I think that, um, you know, the people that are surprised have, uh, either truly not been paying attention or they actively turned a blind eye for so many years that they could now become, uh, now that they can now be called complicit. Yeah, no, I agree. We, you know, we've talked, um, you know, the, the, our society in general has been having this conversation around Me Too for a couple of years and, and yeah. really connecting the idea of power to sexual assault and, yep. and all the associated uh, abuses. Um, and, you know, I mean, as you know so well, it, it's in the church. It's it's a combination of that power. And I remember being a pastor, and um, you know, people look at you different. I used to just want people to see me as a normal person, like my personal friends. And my therapist would tell me, you know, they're your friends, but you're also their pastor. That's never gonna mm-hmm. not be true, you know. So it's just a weird dynamic when you have this um, authority figure, this spiritual authority. Even if the people around me didn't really think of, they made fun of me, they teased me, you know, they treated me like a normal person. But in the back of their thinking, it's still, I'm still their pastor. They don't want to crack that dirty joke or, you know, whatever with me around Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, And and so there's that dynamic, obviously, as a part of this abuse. But there's also, uh, and you've touched on this a little bit already, um, but I was wondering if you would say just a bit more for, and I think some of our listeners know how this works pretty well. But for those that don't, like, how does the theology of evangelicalism add to the uh, the risk factor, if, it, if you will, yeah. of, of, of predatory type of behavior? No, I think I think risk factor is a really good word to use for that. In fact, that's the word I often use when I'm talking to people about this. As a matter of fact, I think this particular angle is one of the most often overlooked um, when it's being covered by, uh, the media, especially media, um, that is not necessarily religious. You obviously have a religious background, but, um, yeah, I think that, um, often what happens is that religious belief, um, largely because of sort of the, um, political rhetoric around it is sort of viewed as sacrosanct, right? So like, this is my sincerely held religious belief. Like it, it should not be questioned. Like if it's my religious belief, then, then you can't question it or whatever. Right. But it's like, ultimately, I mean, here's the thing. Um, There are so many things about conservative white evangelical theology and particularly it's theology around sexuality that lend itself to not just covering up abuse, but forming the bedrock of a culture of abuse. Hmm. Um, So, I I mean, just talking about sex, okay, if you've got, let's say you've got a church, okay, Hmm. you've got a church and they subscribe to purity culture, so um, the only acceptable 
expression of sexuality of any kind is between one cisgender heterosexual man and one cisgender heterosexual woman monogamously in a legal marriage for life. Okay. That's a lot of qualifiers, but yeah, I'm with yeah, you. Yeah, but that's, oh, it's in the Bible though, don't you know? No, no, um, I'm, I'm the, tracking. The Bible says all of those things. <laughs> um, Justice but, of the uh, peace right there in Genesis. Exactly. Adam and Eve, you know? Um, and so, so that's the, that's the starting place. All right. Usually what that means is that um, sex ed is not really considered a positive thing. We want to reduce information about sexuality because if we teach kids how to use condoms, um, then they will use them is the, is the line of reasoning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if we give girls the HPV vaccine, they become sluts. Uh, so there's little preparation. There's little education. Um, you know, any kind of non-heterosexual sexuality is squashed. It is repressed. Um, it is buried deep down. Then you've got the fact that they are primed to view usually um, men as being in charge spiritually, practically, whether that's at home, at church. I mean, sometimes your your mileage varies on that depending on denomination, but usually men are assumed to be the spiritual leaders. You're looking up to men. Mm-hmm. Also, women are usually expected to dress modestly because what if you dress immodestly and a man sees your boobs and then has a sexual thought and you are responsible for turning him on, defrauding his future wife uh, and, you know, leading him down the path of destruction. So there's this expectation of like women as the, the gatekeepers of men's spirituality. So um, definitely if we have a youth retreat um, and a girl shows up in a bikini, we're putting a big old t-shirt on that because what if she incites some man to lust, Mm. Uh, you know? And so we have this culture, right? Of this group of young people and especially a group of young women that are ignorant and naive about sexuality on purpose. They have no sex education. They've never heard the word consent. They view themselves as the followers and the subservient counterparts of men and also as the gatekeepers of male sexuality. Is that not a giant flashing vacancy sign for predators. Yeah. And then, you know, then the religious authorities uh, give clergy and other leaders the okay, benefit yeah. of the doubt. So that's not even talking. That's what I'm saying. That's not even talking about the non-sexual stuff. That's just the sexual stuff. Right. Then we get to the non-sexual stuff about religious authority, about clergy as being in charge, about um, like forgiveness theology mm, and like all oh, this yeah. kind of stuff, right? That the stuff that doesn't have to do with sex necessarily, but also adds to this. I mean, this is literally just a big flashing sign saying predators, you will find your next victim here and we probably won't even blame you for it. Right, exactly. And then, you know, you add on like different queer identities and yep. that's out of out of bounds. You're not... Well, and you can add a racial lens to it as well because ultimately yep. purity... I mean, this is... People who are out there who are a lot smarter than me have written a lot more about this on the internet, but like ultimately purity culture is um, an arm of white supremacy. You're not... You can't really win at purity culture unless you're white. Purity culture is for white people, particularly for white women. Um, and it's basically to like assure the purity of white bloodlines, which like as gross as that sounds is true. Yeah. And they've, um, they've, been, so, they've put it over a veneer of religiosity over it. And that's, yeah. and, and, you know, the roots of the KKK go back to white evangelicalism in America. I mean, yeah. there's, this thing is, well, and you can look at, you can look at the launch of the modern purity movement as coming from like the failure of the resistance to civil rights. Mm, yeah. Um, so there's that, that's a, that's a little thing I'm going to be writing about in, um, hopefully a forthcoming book um i'm working on some some book stuff but that's good that's one of my that's one of my my main um i would say like historical ideas is just that, like purity culture 
as it exists currently in the modern purity movement kind of stems out of this failure of the religious right to resist um, desegregation um, wow. and the civil rights movement. Um, so they'll do it because, by, by uh, reproduction. Yeah. And so that's why, that's why the, the change to the focus on abortion and all of that. So, um, so yeah, huh. that's kind of, I mean, there's, there's all of that too. You can apply all of these lenses to it, like ad infinitum ad nauseum and mm. just realize like how much of just an, an extreme miscarriage of justice the whole thing is. So, and then, and then on top of this, then recently we've seen evangelical leaders, on sort of a um a sort of apology tour kind of a pr mm-hmm. tour we had one a little while ago at at wheaton college and the yep. the one i've been dying to tell you about or or obviously you know about it probably but i'm going to be attending one of al moeller's uh ask me anything tours. you are not i am he's coming to usc where i'm the humanist chaplain I didn't know that he was doing that. That's very interesting. He this was at UCLA. I don't know how extensive it is. He was at UCLA a few weeks ago. And Do you so know if he's marketed it at all? There's a pretty schnazzy little trailer for it and some marketing materials. I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you. I would love to see that. I would absolutely love to see how this is being marketed. Because, yeah, Al Mohler, I mean, he was one of the staunchest defendants of C.J. Mahaney. And he's always been one of the staunchest defendants of, like, Sexist complementarianism as well. I mean, I remember when I was in Bible college, there was this whole like the case for early marriage Al Mohler article going around that like just destroyed everyone and made it impossible to date anyone at Moody because they had all read this like Al Mohler case for early marriage article. And he was basically like, young people are going to have sex, so you better get married early so you don't sin. Um, And yeah, no, it's a whole thing. It's a mess. But he also was like a staunch defender of C.J. Mahaney. And I think what's fascinating is that um, he is now uh, in the age of church, too, coming out uh, and saying, I'm sorry for defending C.J. Mahaney. But um, I don't know if you would get that without church, too. I don't know if I don't know if the if people's asses weren't being held to the fire. I don't know if you would get half of what you're getting. I mean, like I think of like the Willow Creek thing where. Mm. Um, you know, their whole board resigned. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen without church too. That doesn't right. happen without some serious social pressure. Um, well, I want to like, ask him. I mean, he is, oh, yeah. he is like, I think he'll, I think the whole thing, like I, I'll be super bummed out and, and tweet about this, you know, I'll tweet about it either way, but I, I don't think he's giving a big speech and then taking questions. I think the entirety of what he's doing is saying, ask me questions. And he wants them to be about like, how can you believe in a short age of the earth? How can you... Um, oh, it's know. not even about this? Well, it's about anything. Literally anything you want to ask him about faith or belief or anything. Oh, my uh, God. So it's not about like an apology tour, like, sorry for no. CJ May. It's literally just, oh, it's God. like It's like basically I think he's trying to appeal to the young people and say, you know, come be a Christian. It's not so uncool, you know, that type of thing and trying to to be put a positive face. I mean, the, probably the Southern Baptist seminary and the, and the convention probably said, we need someone out there controlling the message. Like, and so I, you know, basically I want to ask him, look, I, I get that you're sorry, right? Like I got caught with my hand in the cookie jar a time or two by my mother as well. And I told her I was totally sorry. And what I meant was, I was sorry I got caught, but you know what in his mind, you know, I want to ask him, what in your mind do you see as the relationship between your theology of human sexuality and the results that you've seen in the Southern well, Baptist. They've already answered that. They've, I mean, honestly, their answer to that is that 
um, complementarianism and a conservative sexual ethic. It's the no true Scotsman thing, right? So they're like, complementarianism and a conservative sexual aspect when followed correctly would never lead to abuse. Like if you're abusing someone, then you have, you have failed to do those theologies correctly. Well, that's the whole of Christianity. protects women. And that's why there's so much abuse in Hollywood and Washington. That's why like the gospel coalition and all these like dudes who are into this type of theology love when abuse happens in Hollywood and Washington because they get to point at it and say, see, Harvey Weinstein's a Democrat. Ha ha ha. That doesn't happen here because we are godly men. You know, like it's one. So, so it's really, they just ultimately, they pass it off as like a no true Scotsman thing forever and ever until we all die. Right. Because they say, they say, Oh, anybody who was really truly following complementarianism and the traditional biblical sexual ethic um, would never do that. You know, yeah, and I've got those. I've got those people in my Twitter mentions every day. So, and it really is not falsifiable. Like you can't really argue with it. Like no, you can't prove it wrong because right. you just keep moving the goalpost. So yeah. it's yeah, it's it's actually kind of a genius marketing tool, but it's just really really dangerous. What you would and, really uh, need would be a bunch of perpetrators to sort of come forward and say, you know what, it was this the- theology that led me to this and he let me explain well how. yeah and that'll never happen because right. i have no reason to right there's exactly. nothing in it for him so yeah yeah it's the problem we face on so many issues and i mean honestly in christianity in general i mean in terms of evangelicalism and conservative types of christianity it's the same whether we're talking about complementarianism and sexuality or whatever else yeah. or whatever else you know like well and that's so i mean i don't know like i like i'm a person who has experienced a lot of transition um, you know, in how I see myself spiritually and how I see myself, um, sexually, I used to think that I was like the straightest person I know. And now that I, now I know that I'm like very, very, very gay. Um, you know, there's, and I think you can, you can look back forever and you can go, okay, well, was that real? Was it not? And you can, you can just drive yourself crazy about it. You know, you literally can, you can read back anything that you want to read back. But I think that like, ultimately, while it's interesting to do that act of like personal archeology, span um, like ultimately what we have to be concerned about is like doing justice and like, um, acting in, in ethical ways now, you know, in this present moment, we can go back and we can, we can say, was that real? And I don't know, but like, we're here, we're now, we're who we are in this exact moment. And so right. how are we going to, how are we going to live the best way that we can live and, and try and enact justice in our spheres and in our world now with the information that we have now. And I think Mm. that's the most important thing. Well, I know we're running low on time here, um, and I I definitely want to at least give a nod to the fact that um, Emily Joy is not just Church 2, that you do other things that, uh, you know, keep you busy and make you happy. What what else do you uh, keep yourself occupied with? Um, I do uh, so many things. <laughs> um, so, I mean, obviously I do a lot of church to activism. Um, I travel to speak about that a bit. Um, I also do like performance poetry, um, like spoken word poetry, some about religious stuff, um, some about not, um, I teach yoga, uh, here in Nashville. And when I travel sometimes as well, I love that. Um, 
Also, as of last week, I work admin at a church gasp. Um, so, um, yeah, you know, I do, I do all kinds of stuff, whatever you um, have to do to make money, you know, it's, yeah, you know, it's just one of those things. Um, but, but yeah, so I like to, I like to keep, um, I like to keep my finger on the pulse of these, of all of these conversations because, um, you know, as I look at um, the conversations that are happening between, you know, evangelical and progressive Christianity and between um, progressive Christianity and atheist agnostics. And I look at all these conversations that are happening. I, you know, I try to place myself on those spectrums and in those conversations. And I, and I look at myself over time and just see how much that I have changed. And I realize that like, you know, my, my personal beliefs, what I believe in my heart ebbs and flows over time, you know, it's up and down, it changes. Sometimes I believe more things and other times I believe less. And, you know, it's not necessarily linear either. Sometimes it is circular. Sometimes things come back around. Um, And, you know, ultimately, I think to me, what matters is that even though my beliefs ebb and flow over time, I'm a big believer in the idea of like justice work and like the, the get in where you fit in sort of model, mm-hmm. um, the approach to that. And, and, and right. Like at the end of the day, like this is where I fit in. Yep. This is what I know how to talk about. Like, even if I don't believe X, Y, Z or whatever, like this is the work that I know how to do. I have a degree from Moody Bible Institute in Christian <laughs> theology, specifically philosophical theology and apologetics. Right. Like I know how to have these conversations. I know how to, I know how the sausage is made. Yeah. Um, you know, and so it's one of those things where it's like, if this is, then this is where I get it. This is where I fit in. So this is where I'm going to get in. Like, this is where I'm going to do the work. Um, this is what, this is what makes sense to me. And this is what I know how to talk about. Uh, and so sometimes, you know, people want to have those conversations with me about like, Oh, are you a real Christian? And I'm like, I've got people in my inbox every week for the last, five years telling me I'm not a Christian. I'm over that conversation. Yep. Like it's, I don't really care whether you you think I'm a Christian or not. And the more, the more attention you get in social media and that type of thing. And you have like so many followers on Twitter, you really do have to be selective about the conversations that you're willing to have because people will take up all your time. No, I mean, I think one of the most liberating things is understanding like, Hey, you don't have to respond to every piece of shit. That's right. (laughs) That gets thrown at you you get a lot of people asking you to do a lot of things. And here's the thing, like I want to be helpful. Right. So of course I'm going to send people like resources and I'm going to be like, here's the Matthew vines video um, talking about all of the Bible verses that don't actually mean that gay sex is a sin. Okay. That's interesting for you there. You can read it. But then people who want me to like interpret stuff for them and have fights, I'm like, "Mm -mm, no, no, not going there. That's not going to happen. Yeah. And you said you're working on a book. Uh, Hopefully. (laughs) Yes. Um, I mean, I, I am working on a book, um, the hopefully is more with regards to whether it actually comes to fruition. Um, but yes, I am, I am, um, in the process of that. So that's fantastic. Well, I hope it does come to fruition. I, you know, you have a lot, you have a lot to say and, and I think, you know, in a way that people can hear it and, and need to hear it. And, uh, so best of luck to you on all of that. It takes time, but, um, yeah, I hope you'll stay with it because I think it's important what you're saying and I love the way you say it. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's really, it's nice for me to be able to like do these types of things and, you know, talk to like different audiences and all that stuff. I love it. So thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people find you if they want to, if they want to follow you? 
Yeah, so I am Emily Joy Poetry on um, most things. Um, that's Twitter. That's Instagram. Um, if you just look me up, Emily Joy, you'll find my Facebook page. You can like it. Um, and yeah, that's got, I mean, you go to those places, you can find all my contact information. I would love to come and like speak at your thing. If you have like a, um, a school or a church or a conference or a festival or whatever it is that you do, um, sure. I'm available for that. Yeah. Just, uh, find me on the internet. It's very nice when I say things to know that I'm not just like, um, screaming into the void, you know? Yep. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. And we'll uh, be in touch with you down the road. I hope. Yeah. Thank you. As Emily and I were mentioning in our conversation, the Church 2 movement has grown quite significantly, so much so that the evangelical community has offered some pushback and also some PR responses and meager attempts to address the concerns being raised by the women and sometimes men that are part of Church 2. If you're on Twitter, check it out. Uh, You can search the hashtag, read more stories and follow some of the significant voices in this movement, including Emily's. In case you're wondering, I didn't end up going to hear Al Mohler at USC, as I uh, initially thought I might. In conversation with my secular student fellowship students at USC, we decided that it wasn't going to be worth our time, that it was a PR stunt primarily, and there probably wouldn't be any significant feedback from him Part of my decision also was influenced by Emily's comments to me here in this conversation in which she indicated that Al Mohler and the Southern Baptist Convention have already responded to these types of questions in the past, and they have ready-made pat answers. So rather than spend a Friday evening at USC listening to Al Mohler, I decided to stay home, and I don't regret it a bit. I hope you appreciated Emily's story. I'd love to hear what you think of this episode. Please write to me, if you wish, at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. Tell me what you thought. Ask questions. If you want to suggest future guests and topics for the podcast, I'd love to hear that, too. You can always reach me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. If you want to learn more about the Life After God podcast and community, you can visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. While you're there, you can also find all the links to our social media and follow us on all those various platforms that we love Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and so forth. I'd also really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. It really helps the podcast grow in visibility on the iTunes platform, helps more people find us, and just helps us gain more credibility in the podcast community. So go to iTunes, search for Life After God, give us a rating. If you're feeling super generous, give us a review and also subscribe to the podcast while you're there. If you'd like to become a member of the Life After God community and be a part of making all of this happen, please go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. There you can make any size recurring monthly donation from $1 up to as much as this podcast is worth to you. As always, thanks to my executive producer, Jeff Straka. Until next time, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. <laughs>